good to see you here today. If you're joining us online, welcome. It's good to see all smiling faces. Um, also online, you, maybe you had fun with us this week. We asked on our Facebook page to share an emoji that reminded you of Pastor Jason. And if you haven't done that or seen them, they're hilarious. So if you want to get, get to be part of the fun, go to Facebook, our Zion Facebook page and submit your favorite emoji that represents Jason. With that, I'll bring him up, pray for him. Some were pretty hilarious. Actually, I think one of my favorite was an ice cube because he always has ice drinks up here. Clever. It's because I'm cool. That, maybe. All right. And if you have to say it, I guess you're not, are you? <laughs> Did you just say maybe? I don't know what she meant. I don't All right, let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for Jason. Thank you for fun. Um, thank you for Aww. laughter that um, we can have a good time and, and just rejoice in who you've created us to be and our, our quirks and all. God, we just give this day to you, ask that you would uh, speak in and through Jason's spirit, mm. that you would just um, overwhelm him, overwhelm us with uh, your presence and what you have to speak to us and say to us today. Uh, pray that as we confront issues of pride and low self-esteem, high self-esteem, God, what does that look like? Um, how do you fit in the middle of that? And how do, we, how do we turn to you when we don't know sometimes what to do with the emotions that we feel? God, we, we give you thanks, we praise you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Megan. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion on behalf of our staff and all who call this home. Welcome. For those of you online, thank you again so much for joining to choosing to join us this morning. Words, I have them. Uh, we're continuing our series, Unconvenience, to where we've been looking at what does it look like to put ourselves on the direct path of discomfort so that we become more like Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I need some transformation in my life. Anybody else need some transformation? Yes, amen, right? There we go, that's my daughter. <laughs> she is so my kid. <laughs> um, what we've been looking at is the fact is that all of us are in need to become more like Jesus. All of us. I am, you are, and what God wants to do in us is that he wants to help us look more like the image of Christ in our daily lives, but that takes work. And quite frankly, it's uncomfortable. And that's what this series has actually been all about. And last week we had the fun time of talking about anger, and here's one of the things that I discovered. I had several people who either came to me or to the prayer corner, and that's something that apparently touched a lot of people. It's an area where they, they've either had self-anger or anger at somebody else and that God's been working in. And one of the things that I'm excited about that's happening in the life of Zion right now, it really feels like God is starting to stir some stuff. Would you guys agree with that? It's starting to feel like God is moving in our community. Not that he hasn't in the past, but it's so cool to see God continue to do new things. And that's really what we're looking at. And so as we've been walking through this series, and if you missed any of it, you can go on our homepage and, and check out the first two teachings. But last week, what we realized is this, is that when we don't deal with our anger, our anger will deal with us. When you don't deal with your anger, your anger will eventually deal with you. And sometimes that anger can come out sideways. You guys know what I mean by that? Sometimes you don't mean to come out angry, but it just kind of oozes out of you because we're not meant to contain that stuff. And so what happens when we do that? Well, anger is an emotion in itself. And as an emotion, there's nothing wrong with anger as the emotion. It's 
why we get angry and what we do with our anger is the problem. Even God got angry. Jesus gets angry. And there are some things that we should be angry about. And so what God wants to deal with today is last week was looking at the what of anger. Today is looking at the why. Why do we get angry? What is it inside of us that causes us to react maybe not the way Jesus would want us to? And that's, there's no one person that, that deals with this. We all deal with it. So here's what I want to look at this morning. This morning we're going to kind of tie the proverbial knot, so to speak. We're going to take last week's message, which was talking about the what of anger, and this week we're going to talk about what, hang, what happens when anger gets unchecked and why we get angry. So if you have your Bibles, and my hope is, is that you bring your Bible, or if you have your phone, you can go on to version. but turn to Matthew chapter 5. Now we're going to start off with where we began last week, and it's not long, but I want to get us to where we're going today. Matthew chapter 5, that's to the right, first book of the New Testament. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which in Aramaic, Aramaic means fool or, or worthless, that you, you are a mistake, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool or moron will be in danger of the fire of hell. Our words matter to God. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first Go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now last week, I'm not going to recap everything, but here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. That's what this whole series is about. It's not meant to be condemning. It's meant to reveal that often what we think are the issues are not really the issues. The real issue is not what we do, but why we do it. And what's going on? What's our motivation behind our actions? And that our external life is a reflection of the internal life inside of us. And Jesus is inviting you and me to a new way of being. He is inviting you and me to be unconvenienced. And it really is. It is an inconvenience to follow Jesus. But it's through that that God begins to transform us and do something inside of us so He can do something through us. Now, let me recap everything we just talked about very quickly. So this is all from last week. First, Jesus tells us that we all agree on this point. Murder is wrong. Would we all agree with that? No one questions that and that we believe murderers should be punished. Second, Jesus connects unrighteous anger. Notice, not all anger, unrighteous anger to murder. Because the reason why people murder is because in their heart they have unchecked anger. And such anger will be judged. Meaning that when you have unrighteous anger, in God's eyes, you've committed murder. Jeez. Third, even righteous, justified anger can turn unrighteous really fast, right? Even when we start off, it's so easy to be angry about the right thing. And all it takes is just a little bit of that flesh component to come in and our righteous anger turns unrighteous and something remarkable happens or sad 
it starts in our heart and then flows out of our mouths. That when our unchecked anger isn't dealt with, our language starts to reflect on it. Murderous thoughts become murderous words. And God cares about words. Why? Because angry words directed at people's worth and value matter to God because we are all made in the image of God. Therefore, our words matter. And then lastly, Jesus says, go take care of your side of the street because your relationship with others impacts your relationship with God. So before you bring your offering to the Lord, if you have something going on with somebody, maybe someone's angry with you, go and try and be reconciled. Now here's why this matters. All of us have had those moments where somebody says or does something that offends us. Or maybe they criticized us and we felt it was unfair. Or they did something intentionally or unintentionally that caused harm. And as hard as it, as it is to admit, none of us have as thick of skin as we believe we do. We all have those pain points. You know what I'm talking about? That little pain button where I know even the toughest people, if you know that one area that makes them feel insecure and you hit that, anger can arise. And this is not uncommon. This is a human issues. Now, sometimes when conflict is not dealt with appropriately, our human nature is to retaliate. Not everybody's, but some people, that's where they go to is retaliation. And here, in these next verses, Jesus is going to warn us what unchecked anger leads to. Wrath and retaliation. So check this out. This is the rest of Matthew 5, this section, verses 25 through 26. So, settle matters quickly with your adversary. That word adversary means foe or enemy who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now this may sound like what Jesus is saying is, hey, try and avoid court at all costs. Now that's true, I think we should, but Jesus is actually getting to something far more insidious. Human wrath, when, when our unchecked anger gets a hold of us, when we're in conflict with somebody, if we don't reconcile, some people just want to watch the world burn. Some people, in their anger, turn to wrath. And if you look at the court system, here's what was happening in the time of Jesus. They'd take you to a judge. The judge would then hand you over to the officer, and you'd spend the rest of your life in prison until you paid back every last cent. Or, in other words, until the person feels they've gotten their pound of flesh. That's what human anger can turn to, is wrath. And human wrath is not righteous. It is not good. It's somebody who just simply wants to make you pay. And if you've ever been on the other side of that, it's a painful thing, isn't it? And if you're the person who struggles with that, it's equally painful. You see, there are some people who just want to see people hurt the way they've been hurt. Now, that's not what God has called us to. And, and here, I want you to hear this, okay? If you're online, listen to this. If you're here, listen to this. Healthy people. Now, healthy is a degree term. Some of us are healthy at other times. Some of us are unhealthy at times. Healthy people, when they're angry, don't try and ruin other people's lives. 
That is an unhealthy thing to do. But there are those who do both inside and outside of the church want to cause harm. This is not typically just a worldly thing. This is a human thing, and it happens in the church too. Healthy people don't try and cause harm. But all of us can be unhealthy at a time. Would you agree with that? So when you don't deal with your anger, when human nature gets the best of you, sometimes you just want your pound of flesh. You're going to look for the maximum amount of pain. So Jesus is doing more than simply saying, hey, even if it's the 11th hour, even if you're on the steps of the court, try and resolve. He's using the court system because it made sense to the ancient listeners, and I think it makes sense to us, doesn't it? I think it makes sense in how we look at things because when sin, when anger turns to sin, even if you're not angry, if someone is angry with you, if you have not tried to reconcile, if it's possible, things may get worse. In God's kingdom, you and I, as followers of Jesus, are called to be peacemakers, to try and make peace even with our enemies. That was part of the Beatitudes. Remember what our first sermon series was in this? The blessed life. Blessed are the peacemakers. We are called to make peace even when it costs us. But, and there is a but in this, what got us there in the first place? How did we get to this place of conflict? Now, I've quoted from this guy, Daniel Doriani, quite a bit. He's got an excellent book where he writes about the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to listen to these words. Okay, check this out. We ought to be careful about the way we insist on our rights. We must watch ourselves to see if we are harboring anger. Now, we live on a lake town, and we have harbors here. But harbors in a sea or in an ocean mean a lot more. Harbors are meant to be a safe place for boats to dock during a storm. If you are creating a safe space in your heart for anger to reside, you're in trouble. Let me say that again. If you are creating a safe place in your heart... For anger to reside, you are in trouble. He then goes on to say this, whether it be looking our wounds or plotting revenge, this applies to everyone we meet, whether a beloved brother or a sworn foe. Make peace if you can. Some people don't want peace. Jesus says, if you offended someone or if he foolishly took offense, of course, one party, this is all from Daniel Dordiani, of course, one party cannot make peace alone. It takes two to make peace. Paul reminds us in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He concedes that it may be impossible if someone refuses your plea for peace. But we must try. Now, here's the last part I want to read from him. And I've got it on the screen. Now, if you want to read along, not read out loud with me, but see it on there. Listen to what he says. In order to make peace, we must know how to take responsibility for our part of the problem. How many of you know or sometimes yourself have a hard time taking responsibility for problems? I do. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten in a a fight with my wife or an argument, and it all would end if I just took care of my side of the street. In a conflict, we can always take responsibility for our part of the problem, even if most of the fault lies with the other person. Our confession may free them to confess their faults. Even if another party refuses to join our quest for peace, we can still apologize and make amends for our part, even if it's a small concession. As a practical matter, peacemaking usually works best 
face to face. Written correspondence is easily misunderstood. In person, face and voice can convey love, hope, and insincerity. Or, sorry, sincerity. In other words, stop trying to work through issues via text messages, people. Thank you, Matt Cook. I I know no one here has ever texted something or been texted something and took it the wrong way. That never happens. We need to stop having email wars and Facebook battles and Twitter wars. It used to be, I think if Paul was writing or James was writing in the New Testament, he wouldn't say the tongue is the most dangerous part. I think he'd say the biggest problem we have is our thumbs. Because it's so easy to say mean things in a cowardly way. It doesn't take any courage to type something out when I'm offended. But going face-to-face and having a real conversation takes grit. Would you agree with that? So when we have conflict, instead of going straight to Facebook or email or text message, we need to go to the person and talk. But if you're both going in, if one person's going in to prove they're right and the other person's going in to prove they're right, they're both going to end up wrong. You can either be right or you can be righteous, but you can rarely be both. Did you catch that? That's what this verse is about. And you're like, Jason, but he was talking about courts. No, what gets you to court? Wrath. Where does wrath come from? Unchecked anger. God is calling us as a church to do something bigger. Now, I have a small challenge for you today, and then we're going to have a big challenge later on. If you're having conflict right now, what is your part in it? And you do have a part. It may not, it might even be just you had a, an angry thought that you held on to that turned to bitterness. Confess it. What do you need to apologize and repent for to possibly open the door for reconciliation? But again, some people don't want to reconcile. Now, Jesus is still inviting you and me to more. I had a pastor at my first church where I was, I was the youth pastor at. 20 years ago, he told me this statement, and I still remember it to this day. Conflict is inevitable. Battle is optional. 20 years later, I still remember that because we've all had conflict. We're going to have conflict. It's part of our human nature. But battle is an option. Choosing to bring out the swords, the guns, the words, whatever they might be, you make a choice to do that. And Jesus is calling us to do more. Amen? To be different. So what is the root of these conflicts? What is this verse ultimately getting to? You want to know why people have battle? Pride. It's a five-letter word that should be a four-letter word. Now, I'm not talking about self-respect. Self-respect means having healthy boundaries. Even Jesus had boundaries. I'm talking about that sense that I deserve what I get. My, my, my. When I'm the center of everything. What's at the center of pride? I. I am. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about pride. Now, I I know I've encouraged you to bring your Bibles, and please do. And if you don't have one, let me know. You don't have to turn to these verses, okay? Just listen to these for right now. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a prideful or haughty spirit before a fall. Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now check this out. When I was in high school, brand new Christian, I think I'd been a Christian for a couple years, and I may have shared this story before. My wife reminds me that I tend to share the same stories over and over again. I don't believe it. 
So if you've heard it, you heard it somewhere else. You didn't hear it from me. So I'm in high school, and my youth pastor, Tim Vincent, I go to Tim, and I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to church. I'm trying to do the good Christian thing. And I said, Tim, I think I got this Christian fi thing figured out. And he said, what do you mean? I said, Tim, I think I've arrived. Literally, those words came out of my mouth. And he looked at me, and he's like, you dumb, foolish person. And I'm like, no, no, Tim, I think I've got this figured out. I got it on lockdown. By me saying that, what did I reveal? I had nothing figured out. Pride is an interesting beast, isn't it? Pride can get in the way of so much of who we are. In James chapter 4, James is right after Hebrews. I want to read you what he says in James chapter 4. Check this out. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 6. I think James hits it on the head. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Here's the thing. James is not talking to the world. He's talking to the church. We forget that. Often when we're reading things in the New Testament, he's not talking to those people outside of the church. He's talking to the church. What causes fights and immorals among you, among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? What's that desire for? It's that selfish desire, that self-centered desire. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Interestingly, Jesus talks about killing with our words. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say this, But God gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Pride is an insidious monster that can get in the way of who we are. Now, pride has other words, but I think what we're really getting at is what is the type of pride Jesus is talking about? He's talking about the old self, the part of us that has not been surrendered fully to Jesus, and we all have those things in our lives. Because we're all sinners, we all need Jesus because we're wrestling with this old self. Paul writes it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We have an old self, that old way of living that we still struggle with thinking. Now, I want to use a very common illustration to deal with a common problem. We all have probably seen this picture of an iceberg. Now, we know that icebergs are smaller on the top. The real danger is not what's up here, it's what's below, what's below the surface. And today, I want to talk about what happens when pride gets a hold of our external. What's the problem? The problem is not the external, it's the internal. And one word that we often use to talk about pride is esteem. And in our culture, we're obsessed with having high esteem. We want to raise kids to have the highest esteem possible. They tend to think too much of themselves. They use words like, I got this. I can climb that. I'm going to go, this is too hard, I can't do it. In fact, they think too little of their abilities. And as a result, there are some things that happen above the waterline. See, above the waterline is what everybody sees. It's the external. For those, the first one I want to talk about is dependence. People with low esteem often are codependent. 
their sense of self-worth, and even their perception of their abilities are determined by those around them and their own circumstances. They're only happy if you're happy. They feel incapable of doing stuff. Now, I, I'll tell you, I have an area of low self-esteem. It's on home repair. I am not handy at all. I, I, like, I'm, I'm my friend Josh Bowler, my house, most stuff in my house, like I so in, I'm so insecure when it comes around my house. That's just, I was raised up in apartment buildings. In, I'm so insecure when it comes around my house. That's just, I was raised up in apartment buildings. Like something went wrong. Well, they tend to struggle with independence. I don't need any sense of humility. Now let's talk about this. Low esteem people, two sides, sense of humility. Now let's talk about this. Low esteem people, they have a false humility. And here's why I say it's false is that they really don't have an accurate view of themselves. They're unsure of themselves because they don't understand their worth and value. And as a result, they may come across and humble, but in reality, they're self-deprecating. Does that make sense? They're actually not humble because true humility is understanding who you are, not just in light of other people, but who you are in light of yourself and in light of the King. Whereas those people that struggle with low self-esteem, a lot of their False humility is rooted in shame or fear or a sense of worthlessness. People that are on the highest, this is what we get the humble, this is what we get the humble bragger. You ever heard or met somebody who's a humble bragger? Oh, it's, it's so tough. I've only got a 5,000 square foot house. Man, there are so people worse off than me. Like that's humble brag. Or the person who can never be wrong who when confronted with an injustice or something they've said or done wrong, they cannot hear it. Or if they do, they may say the right words, but then act the wrong way. Did you catch that? Which then leads to the next issue, which is how do we handle conflict when pride gets a hold of us? For people with low self-esteem, they may tend to avoid conflict or allow others to hurt them out of a sense of worthlessness. They run from fights because they don't understand their own value and worth. Where someone on the high esteem may seek conflict, they look to pick fights because they think they've already won the fight. These are individuals who are looking for opportunities to cause conflict because, again, what they're rooted in, arrogance, independence, which then leads to the last one, trust. Now, I, I get it. There are so many other things we could have. But when trust comes in, the low self-esteem trusts too much. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. goes back to that codependence, right? I can't do it unless I've got other people. They trust too much. Where high self-esteem, they trust too little. They're unwilling to believe they are worthless, but the person on the high side may believe they are entitled. Both are missing the point. Jesus has called us to something else. And anger, when our egos, when our pride, our identity, our sense of worth and value gets offended, the internal begins to stir, which then is reflected in our external. And this is where you're going to find that both sides actually deal with the exact same issue. You see, whether it be high self-esteem or low self-esteem, they're all rooted in the same issues. Pride in our old self, self not surrendered to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God's Word. Human pride steps in. That's why we get offended and why we react the way we do. Don't think for a second that only people with too high self-esteem are the ones who might take revenge. I know people with low self-esteem who take revenge too. They just do it differently. Or they may act in unhealthier ways. Let's take codependence versus independence. So someone hurts you, someone wrongs you, so what do you do? How do you respond? 
both might turn to others for support to validate their feelings or behavior. But here's the key. Codependent people will rally people around them to put in front of them to fight the battle for them. Did you catch that? That's, I can't do that, so I'm going to rally. I'm going to get people on my side, and I'm going to put them in the front and let them take all the heat. Whereas someone who is independent will rally the troops just the same and then put them behind them so that once the war starts, what do they do? They shrink behind and let everybody else fight for them. Both deal with it in a very unhealthy way. Now, I, I want to kind of take a tangent for a moment because I think it needs to be said. As Americans, we pride ourselves on independence. And this is kind of filtered into the church. We even have a national holiday celebrating it. And here is the problem. Some of you, including online in here, wrongly believe that your faith is private and personal, and that's it. You think that you don't need to be a part of a church. I've heard, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard this. Jason, I don't need to go to church to be saved. That is true, you don't. But if you want to be healthy, you better be a part of a church. When I meet Christians who tell me things like, Jason, I like to worship my own way. I don't need some religious organization. You're right. You don't need a religious organization. You need a spirit-filled gospel-preaching church that loves Jesus and is going to love you in your brokenness. Amen? You cannot do it alone. Jesus has a real problem with independence. He also has a real problem with codependence. You can't argue it biblically. I get that. You, you, can, you can make the argument that you don't need to go to church to be saved, but to be healthy, you certainly do. We've made our faith independence. Now, some people were hurt by church, and so they've disengaged, and I get that. Here's the thing. We're all part of the problem. Just because someone hurt you, I guarantee you've hurt somebody else, which is why we desperately need the gospel. We need to learn how to reconcile. Amen? So now when we look at this, the church is meant to be a safe place for broken people. And I'm included in that. You're included in that. We need to see church differently. And I want to tell you, Zion seeks to be a safe place for people to believe, belong, and become more like Jesus. That's why we're here. All of our cheese have slid off the cracker. None of us are perfect. We're all figuring it out. All right. Last thing I want to say on this is going to church is not the same thing as being a part of the church. Just showing up on Sunday morning, yes, you're going. Jesus wants you to be a part of it. This is his bride. You're a member of this family. Be a part of the church. Get involved. No, this is not a plug so that we get more volunteers. Join a small group. Serve. Be a part of the community. All right, that's the end of my rant. Here's where the imagery breaks down. Human beings are complex. And the truth is, I might have really high self-esteem in one area and very low self-esteem in another one, which is why they're all rooted in the same issues. And Jesus wants to get to those. See, we're more like pendulums than an iceberg. I just kind of change which side of the iceberg I live on on any given moment. Does that make sense? Which is why you'll have one person who may act very confident in one area and very insecure in another. And Jesus wants to unconvenience you and me to get underneath the surface. It doesn't matter if you have high or low self-esteem. The heart issue is still the same. So what does it start with? It starts with insecurity. Now, I'm not talking about lack of physical safety. Jesus knew when he was in physical harm. At one point, the crowds wanted to kill him and he just kind of slipped out. 
That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the insecurity that comes from our lack of understanding of our self-worth and identity in Jesus. I'm talking about the insecurity where it's easier to place blame on others than to look in the mirror and see my part in it. In other words, it looks like bravado and defiance, it's never admitting you're wrong, is the same thing as the person who always thinks they're wrong. Both deal with insecurity. I want to read a quote from John Bloom. In the current American vernacular, what we typically mean by insecure is not just a circumstantially induced fear, but a fear so recurrent that we refer to it as a state of being. We talk of being insecure, or we might say so-and-so is an insecure person. And what we really mean by insecure is feeling a significant lack of self-confidence or a powerful fear of others' disapproval or rejection or a chronic sense of inferiority. Guess what? I know people with really high self-esteem that still feel inferior. And how do they deal with it? Well, they project bravado. I'm strong. I can handle this one inside. They're really scared children. Jesus wants to get to the heart. Both deal with insecurity. Secondly, not only do we deal underneath the surface, deal with insecurity, we also deal with unhealthy emotions and a sense of self-image. Emotions themselves are neither good or bad. That's why we have them. God created us to have emotions, but it's when they become bad that it's a problem. Fear, sadness, anger. God tells us to fear God, to have a healthy sense of awe. No one takes a running start to the Grand Canyon to see how close they can get to the edge. That's a healthy sense of fear. But when fear turns towards man, fear of how people perceive you, that's wrong. Jesus experienced sadness. He was sad over the sin and unbelief and lack of faith. Jesus had anger. These are okay emotions when they're directed the right way. It's when they're coming out of our own brokenness. When they come out sideways, they become a problem because they can't handle not being good enough or wrong. That's what arrogance is. It's the inability to say, I was wrong. It's the inability to say, I don't know. I struggled to say, I don't know for years. There's so much freedom and being able to say, I don't know. Go ahead, ask me a question. I don't know. Sometimes I just say it to remind myself that it's okay to not know. The third one is control and power. See, when someone on the low self-esteem, they still struggle with no control or a lack of power. For them, it's that they don't feel they have control or they feel powerless, where the person on the other side, they must have control and must have power, and they can't let it go, even when it's not theirs in the first place. And then lastly is both are selfish. High esteem people think too much of themselves. Low esteem people think too little of themselves. Both, both are guilty of thinking of themselves too much. Jesus has called us to more. Now here's the thing I love about the Bible. The Bible knows that this is a human struggle. In fact, everybody in the Bible except for Jesus struggled with one of these things. Some had high esteem, some had low esteem, whether it be Abraham and Sarah, Moses, Samson, Gideon, King Saul, King David, Jonah, all of the disciples, all of them struggled to live on one of those sides of the glacier. God's not surprised by our brokenness, but he does want to meet us there. Jesus came to show us a new way. See, Jesus is our Savior and King, but he's also our model. We're trying to become more like Jesus, not more like the Apostle Peter. You're trying to become more like Jesus, not more like Jason. If you're trying to look like me, I'm a failed 
a flawed model of who Jesus is. We need to look at Jesus. Amen? And so what do we see with Jesus? Well, we need to look below the surface of Jesus' life to understand above the surface how he lived. Unlike us, Jesus never dealt with insecurity. Jesus always knew who he was in the Father. John 8, 23, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus had anger, he had sadness, he had sorrow. He was even jealous for his Father's fame. But it was a holy jealousy. But all of it came from the ultimate source. Every emotion Jesus had was grounded in God's love. Because God is love. So even his anger was a loving anger. Jesus never defended himself. His wrath was never directed because he was offended at what you said about him. He always cared about what was done to other people. How often the reason anger calls to more. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Lastly, entrusted us with the mission. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus would have done a far better job, would do a far better job than I ever would preaching. If Jesus was up here right now, our church would be packed. Every Sunday, we'd have people coming from miles and miles because I'm not Jesus. But he entrusted people like me and you to be the ones who bring the kingdom of God into the world. That takes security, doesn't it? How many of you struggle with letting things go because you don't trust? Jesus' trust was ultimately in the work of the Father and what he would do. Even on the cross, his last words were a trust in God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus also had all authority and power. When Jesus says, I did not come to come to be served, but to serve, it is a reminder that the below the line surface needs to change us. And where does that start? Remember the whole series we did on the Beatitudes? This is where it starts. Jesus lived out of the Beatitudes the blessed life, which was the result of the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit fully within him because he was perfectly God and perfectly man. You and I need the Holy Spirit to reveal these things in us. So what does that mean? Jesus did not call us to low esteem or high esteem. He called us to esteem. We are called to have a sense of who we are. Like Jesus, we are not supposed to think less of ourselves, but think of ourselves less. That's what esteem looks like. When I am not the center of things, other people and God's glory become the center. I don't know about you, but I need more of that in my life. So what does that lead to? Well, first, Jesus wasn't codependent or independent. He was interdependent. Jesus had a relationship and trusted in the Father and the Holy Spirit, but he also with one another. For some of you, that's scary, either because you're on the low esteem side or the high esteem side. We need to get over our fear so we can become more like Jesus. Amen? Secondly, that leads to humility. Jesus had the right to demand worship and yet over and over again made sure that the Father was glorified. That was his mission. Next, because of that humility, Jesus did not avoid conflict or neither was he afraid of conflict. He was unafraid of conflict. Why? Because he knew what he was fighting for and who he was fighting for. He said the right things, the hard things at the right time. Because he wasn't defending his honor, his fame. He was defending God's and other people's. When we see Jesus, Jesus certainly was not afraid of conflict. But he didn't seek it either. 
I want you to read through the list of what's above and below the surface. What strongholds are keeping you captive? Where do you need breakthrough in your life? And how do you get there? We need the new person in us. We need to become new in Christ. We can try and change the external, what's above the waterline, all we want. But until we let the Holy Spirit work below the surface in our lives through the Word and through community, we will never experience breakthrough. We can read all the books we want on it. We can have all the small groups, all the therapy sessions we want. But until we let the source get to the source, we're always going to be in trouble. So here is the path. What it means to be unconvenienced. You guys ready for this? The stronghold of human pride gets in the way of reconciliation and can lead to wrath. The pride of the old self is in my identity, my control, my emotions, my security, and my rights. Breakthrough begins when I confess and lay my life at the feet of Jesus and surrender control to the Holy Spirit. I find my pride in who Jesus is and what He has done and will do in me and in the world. The new self finds pride in making Jesus famous. Do you want to make Jesus famous in your life? It starts by laying your life down. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians. Would you stand with me? Here's what I want to do. I think, I think we got this on the screen. Do we have Galatians 2.20 on the screen? Do we have that? Can we read this out loud together? If you can see it, if you can't, I get it. But I'd like for us to read this out loud, and then we're going to come to a time of worship, okay? This is our plea. This is your prayer right now. This morning, if you need breakthrough, this is where it starts. Let this be your prayer. So would you read this with me out loud? You guys ready? Here we go. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can I get an amen? amen? There we go. Let's come and worship the Lord. And if you need to do business with God, we're going to invite you to come and do it. We're going to sing. If you want to raise your hands and worship, that's cool. But let us come and surrender because Jesus is King.